The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here today. Uh, We know that uh, Saturdays in November that are free are in short supply, and so we are uh, thankful and blessed that you've uh, taken the time out of your schedules uh, to be here with us. Uh, It is going to be a full day and uh, a fairly long one, so there are regular breaks in the program for you to uh, reignite the brain with coffee and so forth. Um, And um, we've purposefully left the main event, uh, Bishop Michael, uh, till this afternoon so that you can uh, get into the groove of the day, as it were. But there is a a rationale and a a plan in our theme and the way we've developed and structured the program today. And my task this morning uh, is to kick off by in a sense, looking at the big picture. We seem to be asking today what seems to be, or would seem to some to be, a very rudimentary question. I mean, as Christians, don't we all know uh, what the gospel is? Why why would anyone, why would Christians host a conference on the question, what is the gospel? Interestingly enough, actually, um, the question has been asked often, And it's been disputed, and actually lots of very good books have been written on the question, really, of what is the nature and character of the gospel. Today, we're living in a a time and a context when the answer to that question, for many Christians, does not seem to be as obvious as it used to be. And so what I want to uh, try and do today is sort of bookend. Uh, I'm going to be bookending the day this morning and then very, very briefly, just a few words at the end of our our day together. But I want to, in a sense, bookend the gospel. And that's why I've entitled my address, The Road from Eden, The Meaning of the Gospel. I want to begin, actually, by reading from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, probably a familiar psalm to many of you. Psalm 8, beginning at verse 1. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you remember him? The son of man that you look after him. You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. All sheep and oxen as well as the animals In the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Now, at the most rudimentary level, when we use the term gospel, when we talk about the gospel, 
we know that the, the, the word literally means good news. Good news. But news that is good is not delivered into a vacuum, is it? I mean, you can't comprehend news as good news without a context. There has to be a context for the news. News can only be good in relation to a broader story. Perhaps you are given, for example, the good news that the battle is over, or the patient is out of danger, or the fire is out, or the baby has been born, or the house has been sold. Well, all of those headlines actually presuppose a wider story by which you can understand the news to be truly good. After all, the headline, the house is sold, may not be good news if it was the house you were trying to buy. So, behind all of those headlines are actually more expansive stories, aren't there, of war or of sickness or of a bushfire or of a family and pregnancy or of a desire to move house. And those provide the context for the headline so that the headline is good news. Now, as Christians, we are uh, rightly centered around the gospel, the good news. And so we're taken up with the question of understanding it. But we increasingly do this in a world that has lost this context of the wider story. So as to be able to recognize the message that we have as good news. I mean, how often do people jump up and down when you share the gospel with them? Celebrating what you're saying as really good news. That's wonderful news. It's increasingly difficult for the non-believer, therefore, to make sense of Christian gospel headlines. The headlines that we tend to use to describe the gospel. Most of us believers understand the gospel to be the news that salvation is offered by Jesus Christ through his death for our sin and his resurrection from the grave. And we see the implications of that as being our rescue from judgment that is due for our sin and the way being opened up to heaven. And this account is actually correct as far as it goes. But as the uh, evangelical cultural theologian Andrew Sandlin has pointed out, it doesn't actually go far enough. It's good as far as it goes. It's correct. But it doesn't go far enough. He says this Common description is necessary, but not sufficient. You can't have the gospel without it, but you need more than this to have the gospel. You can't have the gospel without it, but you need more than this to have the gospel. In this sense, this truncated formulation of the gospel which, many make, which may make sense to biblically literate Christians today, this headline version of the gospel is a gospel without a context. It's without a wider story within which to understand personal salvation from the corruption of guilt, uh, from the uh, tragedy or the, the, the problem of guilt and the corruption of sin. Now, you as a Christian may know the wider story and fit it into that context so that the gospel is understood by you in its fullness. But if you tell somebody today that they're a sinner and they need to repent, one of the first questions is, well, what is sin? And to whom am I repenting? 
And what and when you say, well, you need to enter the kingdom of God, which God, what kingdom? I mean, these are the questions in a biblically illiterate culture. Very quickly, uh, slightly off point but related, when Billy Graham was in England in the 1950s, I think it was at the Haringey Crusades, and he got up and for many weeks in a row filled a stadium, so much so that Winston Churchill couldn't understand how any orator could bring so many people out to a football stadium to, uh, night after night. And many, many people professed, at least, faith in Christ during those uh, lengthy series of meetings. Well, when he got up and said, the Bible says, everybody knew what he was talking about because he was speaking into an evangelized, if not uh, an evangelized culture, even though the people he was speaking to weren't necessarily Christians. They had evangelized minds. They understood the biblical context. The Bible for them had authority. And a simple proclamation of the what we might call the headlines of the gospel had a profound impact. He came back in the 1980s to Britain and had nothing like the same effect. Because that underlying story of the gospel was missing. Let's see again as Sandlin puts it, the gospel doesn't start with the cross or resurrection, though these are its high points. The gospel starts with the creation and fall. And so it's when we start to actually plot the course of the gospel from Eden, as this road from Eden, that we begin to comprehend its full scope and the meaning of the gospel and then its significance for our lives, which increasingly is lost even on many professing Christians today. Christ is set forth in Scripture as the Alpha and the Omega. And for non-Greek scholars among you, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet Um, He's the beginning and the end. Not just the end, not just in the middle. He's the beginning and the end. The beginning and end so that we don't relegate his salvific and redemptive role in history to a brief appearance in the middle and then an intervention at the end. These may be strong movements in the gospel theme, but they're not the whole symphony. He is beginning and end, but he dominates actually everything in between. Now, some might object that when we talk in this way, in the process of expounding the gospel, we are making that which is simple complicated. (laughs) And that we uh, would rather demand an old-time simple gospel. Give me the old-time religion. Give me that simple gospel message. And there is, of course, a difficulty with that. It's a sort of democratic impulse to reduce everything to a lowest common denominator, as though there is such a thing as a simple-minded gospel. Now, that's not to say that we're all intellectuals or we all have to be intellectuals or that the gospel is a matter of some kind of um, uh, intellectual reflection that is only really reachable by those of a certain degree of sophistication. No, that's not true. But it would be the fallacy of simplicity to say that we just have this simple gospel, this old-time religion, uh, which actually has no context. In fact, it doesn't result in a clarification of the gospel, because obviously when we say we want to make something simple, we mean we're trying to clarify it. It doesn't clarify the gospel when we say, well, we've got the simple gospel. It actually uh, makes the whole question murky. Jesus died for you and has a plan for your life is not the gospel. 
or has a wonderful plan for your life, usually, <laughs> just in case people think it might be difficult. <laughs> that, that isn't the gospel. It is only actually when we cease to view the gospel in a very sort of individualistic, reductionistic fashion and see it in the light of the whole of Scripture that we see the beauty and the glory of the gospel, which is what we're hoping to do a little bit of today. So let's consider then for a minute just the existential context of the gospel. The gospel isn't an abstract concept. It's not an idea as such. I mean, obviously... We have ideas about the gospel, but it's not like the monistic world of, of Plotinus' absolute one, that Greek philosopher who kind of was the culmination of Greek thought. And Greek thought was all about the ideas. Ideas. The gospel isn't simply an idea of thinkers. Thank goodness for that. Nor is it simply, though, a personal spiritual experience or reality for me. The gospel isn't adequately expounded either by my personal testimony, as though it were essentially an autobiographical element of the sort of general story of my life. Here's a component of my life. It's called the gospel. It's an autobiographical thing that I'm talking about. Instead, in the fullest sense, actually, the gospel of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, is the backdrop, it's the stage, it's the theater in which all of life is lived. And that is true, actually, both of the believer and the non-believer alike, whether they realize it or not. For one, it is the savor of life, the Apostle Paul says. For other, it is the savor of death. But before we actually encounter the person of Jesus and the cross of Christ in that very specific work of historical satisfaction for sin, we find the human race and ourselves alive in God's creation and in a context of a meta-story of kingship, of justice, and of redemption. And it's only within that context that actually the details of the specific redemptive work of Jesus can begin to make any kind of sense. Now, the creation itself is a necessary foundation of the story. If there were no creation, we wouldn't be here. There would be no gospel, obviously. It's the necessary starting point of the story. And everything that is made is pronounced very good. Well, there's the first bit of gospel. The first bit of good news is that everything's very good. It's made very good. It said, God says so himself in Genesis 1.31. That's the first bit of good news we discover in the gospel. Creation is inherently good. And this means that the material creation itself, of which you and I are actually a part, is not the reason we need and preach salvation in Jesus. The fact that we are part of creation, and we're in the cre- don't worry about the sounds of the Starship Enterprise over there, that's our, uh, that's our ancient boiler system just trying to keep you warm. That the created order is not the cause of our disquiet, neither is it our basic problem. The essential human need, according to the Bible, is not to overcome creation as a drag on human existence. Various uh, Indo-European worldviews have suggested that the body is a prison or that the material world is lower and a debased form of existence 
and that the grass towards salvation is actually to be liberated from the body, liberated from the material world into a realm of pure spirit, pure being, pure idea, into this realm of abstract forms. And actually some Christians tend to think that the goal of salvation is being delivered from creation into heaven, into this ethereal realm where we'll no longer have all the problems associated with our bodies. That's actually Greek philosophy, not Christianity. But if creation is actually then good, why do we experience this existential disquiet? Why are we unhappy? Why do we have all these problems in life? that lead people to ask questions about the gospel? Why the universal longing for redemption, salvation? Why the quest for true spirituality? Why the desire for liberation and the necessity, in many people's minds, of escape? And even some of our doctrines of the second coming are actually doctrines of escape. Well, as one poet has put it, He says, thus far, thus dead. The clock strikes death, ticks time. To die, to die, to stock the grave, to prime the pump of vengeance to full flow. The knocking rain against all vigilance seeps in. The clocking death rides high. You see, we're cognizant of the fact that we are beings who are broken and we're affected by the ravages of time and history. And so the gospel is actually a story within time, not a story that's basically outside of time to get us out of time and history. It's a story within time, sovereignly ordained from eternity, that begins with the good news of a good creation but in which that good Edenic order there in Eden is disrupted and disturbed and falls into ruin. But that fall that we speak of in Christian doctrine is not from spirit into matter. It wasn't a metaphysical fall. It was a fall from righteousness, holiness, and godly dominion in covenantal and immediate intimacy with God into the sin of idolatry. Actually, creation worship, the worship of man himself, self-worship, with a resulting distortion, decay, and disruption of every aspect of life because of the severing of our relationship with God. That's the human condition. Fall of our race, then, was ethical. It was a moral issue. And so the human problem lies in the heart of man manifesting itself in all of his actions, all of his activity, and even all of his thinking. Fundamentally alienated from intimacy with God and disjoint from his proper calling, man is lost. He feels lost. Cut off from paradise in an apparent wilderness of time so that the concurrent and so that his life finds that there is a concurrent intermixture, a disturbing, actually, intermixture of joys in life, but also disquieting realities that traumatize us. They make us yearn for release. It's like there's a homing beacon calling us back to Eden the whole time. 
that says, this is traumatic, this isn't right, this is broken, there's something wrong, how do we get out of this? How is this to be fixed? It's like a homing beacon. And so there is this concurrent intermixture. And actually the Bible speaks about it very plainly, very frankly, in Ecclesiastes, in the wisdom literature of the Bible. I think he describes it best. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. It's so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So there are beginnings, but there are also painful endings. With all things that come along in life, there is decay and distortion of everything because of sin and rebellion. Zach Eswine, in his book on the message of Ecclesiastes, summarizes it well. He says this, In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve ahead of time what they could expect regarding the landscape of their days. He told them about the land, the animals, their love for each other, their food, work, and the absence of any need to lock their doors at night. He also told them of two trees, two kinds of life, and the possibility of death should one of these trees experience misuse by them. Then after the death came, God prepared them ahead of time regarding how their days east of Eden would change. And this is what leads to that experience that everybody has of a present intermixed experience that's so evocatively described there in Ecclesiastes 3. Trauma, tragedy, disquiet. They now share space with times of delight, repose, and contentment. So the writer speaks about death, killing, weeping, mourning, tearing down, losing, hatred, war... They're intermingled with laughter, birth, dancing, building, and so on. So that we can't actually talk about our lives, our desires, our fears, our human experience without reference to that inescapable reality of time and history. And it confronts us with this very traumatic dimension. And if you've not experienced it, you've just not been alive long enough yet. Now, much as many philosophers would like to deny it and view life as a passing illusion, this fact of a 
broken creation is inescapable. We simply cannot elude the world nor evacuate creation, for there is a time for every matter and every work. Now, Scripture is plain that in the beginning, in Eden, there was nothing about time that was our enemy. There was nothing about it that caused us distress. Now, if you can hear an echo on my voice, that's a Spanish translator just up behind us there. So, panic ye not. There was nothing about it that caused us distress. And again, Eswine puts it this way. He says, time, listen closely, he says, time was like a friend who allows us to spend a weekend of retreat in his home. Within this provision, we could recover and live out our purpose. Time was a living room for company, a hallway for movement, a bedroom for lovemaking and rest, a table for food, a yard for work and play, a path for reflection. Time was beautiful, a friend to humanity, as both it and they cohabited the God-given world. Here's an interesting way of seeing it. The tragedy of life now in this fallen world, though, is that time seems to stalk and haunt us with innumerable pressures and stress. You can hear some of them now. How many did you have just getting here? It exposes now our boredom, as Pascal put it. It rots the rafters of our security. It tarnishes the finish on our most prized experiences. And like a once homely and familiar, yet beautiful and majestic, stately home with grounds that take your breath away, it now lies in ruin. It's dilapidated with fences surrounding it saying, no trespassing. Eden is now essentially out of reach. And yet the desire to return runs in our veins. And that's what gives human beings these yearnings. We remember it still, though fading like a picture postcard. And this is because eternity is still in our hearts, the Bible says. But now, because of sin, the precious gift of time becomes the theater of our judgment. Creation is placed under a curse, bears the marks of the pollution of sin, and our lives are marked by frustration and fear and restlessness as we're barred from paradise. Now that is the starting point of the gospel. The good news of a good creation. And yet this bad news, which everybody in in their own being is deeply conscious of, of our ruin, of our fall. Now the message of Jesus, you know, Jesus died for you and has a wonderful plan for your life, doesn't mean anything without a context that gives you a way of interpreting and understanding Christian headlines. Thank God, though, there's more to the gospel than that tragedy of the fall, of ruin. It begins historically with creation and the fall, but it rests, actually, the gospel finally rests on an agreement from eternity past. An agreement. This agreement of the divine council is first spoken in Eden, When as the curse is pronounced, a promise is also made. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and his heel shall be bruised. That's the great proto-evangel, the first announcement of the gospel. The curse is to be broken. Death will start working backwards, as C.S. Lewis 
once put it, I think in the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. And so in the Old Testament, through his tears and through his sorrow, amidst that disquieting experience of Ecclesiastes 3, that so vividly describes, in the tragedy of his ravaged time, that ancient patriarch Job looked to the promise in hope. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Now, you could preach several sermons just on that. Notice the centrality of his flesh. His flesh may be wasting away in the ravages of time, but in his flesh he will see God because he knows his Redeemer lives. This is a man who lived around the time of Abraham. Who is this Redeemer? From the destructions of sin and death, from the derelictions of misused time. Who is he? Well, we know his name as Christians, don't we? Jesus Christ. When time has waited long enough, God sends forth His Son, Galatians 4.4. But it is here we have to pause, I think, before we rush with exuberant haste into the great events of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels. Because Jesus comes with a context, a historical one. And it is this context which helps us grasp the scope and implications of the good news. The gospel first disclosed repeatedly in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, and it's actually in terms of this disclosure, in terms of the prophetic witness of the Old Testament, that Jesus understands both himself and his mission. Jesus doesn't just appear on the scene as my personal savior. It's in the context of biblical history. In Isaiah 52, which St. Paul quotes, in Romans 10:15, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, gospel. The prophet is reminding the oppressed covenant people there in Isaiah that one day the full outworking of deliverance and salvation by the might of their king will take place. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Verse 10 of Isaiah 52. And so here the gospel actually sets forth that God is king of all the nations and the entire earth will witness his great salvation in history. Scripture is equally plain that this is accomplished by only by the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. But it's this fact that makes it critically important that we do not trifle with the name Jesus Christ, nor rush without thought to the life of Jesus. Christ, the word Christ, is a translation of the word Messiah. Messiah. The anointed one who is ordained and sent by God to a particular purpose. Why is this important? Well, the Old Testament first speaks of Messiah before the name of Jesus is known. 
I mean, apart from the fact that the name Joshua is there in the Old Testament, the Old Testament doesn't tell us what Jesus' first name is going to be, what the, the Christ, the Messiah's full name is going to be. He's known as Messiah first. He was announced as Messiah before he came historically as Jesus Christ. This is important because the good news does not begin with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't start there. Moreover, even in the Gospels, we're not actually given strictly a life of Jesus. You know when people write you know, the life of Jesus? The Gospels are not a life of Jesus. If they are, they're a deeply dissatisfying life of Jesus, aren't they? Because they omit numerous and what would be very interesting details in a life of somebody. I mean, you know, we, we know about his birth and we know almost nothing until a brief appearance at the temple and then we know nothing till his public ministry and that's three years long. And the Apostle John says if everything had been written about him, the whole world would not be enough to contain everything that Jesus did. We have a snapshot. And that's for the simple reason that he cannot be separated from the Old Testament prophecy and from the salvation history out of which he came in God's eternal plan. The Bible never intends, the New Testament doesn't intend to give us a life of Jesus because he understands himself in terms of the Scriptures. As Klaus Skilder has put it, no one is able to characterize the name of Jesus in a faithful way as long as, he has not become, as long as it has not become clear to him from the whole of Scripture what Jesus came to accomplish as the Christ and what he therefore as God's office bearer par excellence has to do in and for and also with the cosmos. It's not simply, you see, what Jesus Christ has come to do for us in the gospel that counts, what we tend to focus on, our forgiveness of our personal sins, but also what he has come to do with us and with his world as creator, king, and covenant head. Paul says of God the Son, the Messiah, for from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. He thus dominates, directs, and governs all the ages in the scheme of the gospel because God is working out a plan and a purpose for history that is summed up, summed up ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus then presents himself to us in his own light in Scripture, in his own light. And it's his work as the Christ through which he manifests that he is God's prophet, God's priest, and king who has come to reconcile all things that were alienated back to God. So we cannot, this, this means essentially, friends, that we cannot construct a Jesus and a salvation of our own imagination. And to do so is actually blasphemy. Such Jesuses proliferate today, even in the church, that bear no resemblance to the Messiah, the office bearer. And that's because people have said, let's do a life of Jesus. Let's have a red letter Christianity. Let's have a, um, uh, we don't need all of this stuff. We just need the gospel, they say. 
Because they're not rooted in Christ, the office bearer, we have the positive thinking psychological Jesus, very popular in the United States. We have the Marxist liberationist Jesus, very popular in South America. We have the hippie pacifist Jesus. We have the feminist or progressivist Jesus, the social justice eco-warrior Jesus, and on and on and on. Because he's not the Christ, the office bearer, the prophet, priest, and king. But it is precisely because we can only have Jesus Christ, the office bearer in the history of redemption in Scripture, that there is only one true gospel. It's because we can only have Jesus Christ, the one true office bearer, that there is only one gospel. In Jesus Christ, we have two names. Jesus Christ joined. The Messiah, the anticipated one, before Jesus was born, Jesus. We also have in Him two natures joined, without confusion, without division, without separation. The divine nature, the human nature, in one person. His singular office as anointed one, the sire, is to do battle against Satan and all his works of sin and death and oppression at this turning point of the ages. What does the Apostle Paul say? We are the ones on whom the end of the ages has come. At this turning point, God sends forth His Son. And His office was, according to Skilder in his marvelous book, Christ and Culture, to be the second Adam. To be the second Adam. That is, to establish a community of men, this time not of one blood as a living soul, but from one spirit as a quickening pneuma. If then we are to understand Christ's name... Jesus Christ, and by it his office, and therefore his gospel, we need to go back to Eden, to the first Adam. If Jesus Christ is the second Adam, as the Apostle Paul makes very plain that he is, we have to track the road from Eden, and you'll notice that Adam is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke's gospel. The first Adam was made by God for a purpose. To be an office bearer. A vice regent in creation with rule and dominion in God's world in terms of God's word and terms and purpose. It was this office that was to determine Adam's actions and relationships as God's office bearer. He was appointed to be, in Paul's language, God's fellow worker. 1 Corinthians 3, 9. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about um, the second Adam and um, Romans 5. He was to be God's fellow worker. Our first parents' work in Eden was quite literally, and I love this, liturgy. That's especially for Bishop Michael being here this weekend. It was liturgy. Public work, public service to God. Everything that 
Adam and Eve did was liturgy or service. In and to the kingdom of God, which is over all the cosmos, including men and angels. And the opening chapters actually give us the basics or the ABCs of their task under God. You can read them there for yourself. I haven't got time to pull up all of these scriptures. I'm assuming that you can turn there yourselves and look at it in due course. They were to turn creation into a God-honoring and glorifying culture. That is, they were to cultivate and care for God's world and to rule in such a way as to reflect the character and rule of their maker. They were to reflect to creation what God was like. It was a world not pre-shrink-wrapped and microwavable, where the only need was to make two hammocks and uh, a couple of pina coladas and swing all day in paradise doing nothing, a sort of sanctified idleness. If you don't know what a pina colada is, ask Dr. David Robinson. I'm not sure myself. He mentioned it to me before the... It wasn't a pre-shrink-wrapped world. Rather, it was fashioned in a promise and in hope that needed to be developed. Its potentialities explored and resources creatively applied. In other words, there was cooking and fencing and gardening and metallurgy and animal husbandry and building and culture making. That was the task. It wasn't pre-made. The Edenic scene was therefore a beginning, not an ending point. And we misunderstand the gospel if we see Eden as the end point, not the beginning point. It was a starting point. And it was from this point where man as God's fellow worker was to develop the city of God that would emerge full grown in the progress of the centuries. A garden city. This required invention, every form of cultural activity and fellowship with God, bound by his ordinances, that is his laws in creation, and applying God's principles for service. And this service in itself, this liturgy, was not an end in itself, so as to say somehow the cultural activities in themselves were an end in themselves. Rather... Since man was bound to serve God's purpose with respect to the cosmos, he was to kneel down now and presently, as Skilder puts it, before his maker in and together with a cosmos prepared by his own hand under God's providence, culturally engaged as he is in view of his own, but especially of God's Sabbath into which he, man, has to enter. He was to kneel down, to bow down, to present all his work to God and enter into God's rest. And this is all for the joy. This was done at the end of which is for the joy of knowing, loving, serving, and glorifying his Father with all that he is and all that he has. You know, when you read the genealogy of Jesus, the Son of God, you get to the end of that genealogy in Luke's Gospel and we read the Son of Adam, a Son of God. The first son of God, the first Adam, an office bearer, 
given a cultural task. But we know that Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, and they went instead about the task of unculture. I know that's not a word. I've invented it. Unculture. That is disintegration. Rather than integrating all things in God's world in terms of a unity of purpose, they went about the task of disintegration. They abused their office, and our race fell into sin seeking instead to exercise rule and authority to cultivate for their own ends purpose, their own purposes, and serve themselves as their own God. And that was the nature of the temptation in paradise, wasn't it? You will be as gods. Knowing or determining for yourself good and evil. The tools of culture became more important for them than the kingdom of God itself. This resulted in the disintegration of life, the disordering, distortion, dereliction, and demunition of all man's activities and relationships. I know that's a lot of Ds, but it kind of rolls off the tongue. Distortion, disordering, dereliction, diminution of all man's activities and relationships. That was the result. As such, man is not only alienated from God, and this is the key point, he seeks to alienate God's world from its maker by his cultural activity. He's alienated from God, but he wants to alienate God's world from its maker. To separate what God joins and join what God separates. To deny God's distinctions and create an illusory and socially constructed reality of his own. And if ever we were seeing this come to self-conscious expression, it's in our culture today. Where human beings believe they can socially reconstruct human sexuality, human identity, human gender, marriage. The most rudimentary building blocks of civilization and human society, man says... They're illusory. They are socially constructed. We will recreate them, reconstruct them as our own God. And the result is that he seeks to separate religion and culture. Faith and science. God and state. He's going to separate those things out. He's going to alienate those things from the living God. For he now seeks the culture of Cain, not Abel. God must have nothing to do with the real world, for there man must build his own paradise in rebellion against God's verdict. He denies God's unity of fact and meaning and insists on separate parts, severed from the whole of God's creation and purpose. He wants his multiverse. He doesn't want God's universe. As such, the antithesis between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent develops in every area of life and thought. In the prolongation of time after the fall, as gospel history differentiates the two cities, the development of this basic antithesis was inevitable. You wonder why sometimes you can't get through to your non-believing friend or colleague? It's the development of an antithesis.
There was only one creation or nature, but there is a twofold use of it. There is only one earth, but there are two different visions for developing and shaping it. There is one cultural urge basic to humanity to have dominion, but there is two distinct forms of cultural striving. In the midst of man's futile efforts to remake himself as divine, in the purposes of God, though, into all of this mess, God sent forth the seed of the woman. His own son, the Messiah, second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 45 through 48. It wasn't Achilles. It wasn't Achilles. I know they say his heel was pierced, but it wasn't his heel. It wasn't Hercules. It wasn't Nimrod. It wasn't any of the pagan gods who, in a sense, recapitulate this promise. It was this Seed only of the woman, not Zarathustra, which I believe means seed of the woman, but Jesus Christ, the office bearer. And he comes to be, as Messiah, the second Adam, the true office bearer, to fulfill the office that man had been called into to fulfill in the beginning. And he does so by perfect obedience. Christ comes in the gospel story to restore God's order, bringing all things back to God through redeeming His new people or His new humanity to serve God in concrete life, to obey God in every function, to fulfill God's expressed will with all that is in us. That was His purpose. And He comes to make it possible for us to again fulfill our calling to serve God to give back to him his world, flourishing, developed, God-honoring. That is why the Bible says that in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. His work in this regard was judicial. Because man's problem was ethical, not metaphysical. He didn't come as a philosopher, a sage, just say, let me show you some new building techniques. <laughs> let me sort of redirect your architectural striving. Let me, let me redirect your intellectual reflections philosophically. He is a redeemer into whose hands judgment is committed, not a philosopher who shares an abstract scheme for escaping reality. What hath Jerusalem to do with Athens? That's an old question, but it's still a relevant one. In life, he not only fulfills the cultural role of prophet, priest, and king, just as Adam was called to be in the garden, but by his blood atonement and death, he purchased the right of renewal of a new people, recommissioned to be prophets, priests, and kings in the service of God, to be his co-workers in the power of the Spirit, in the reconciling of all things in heaven and earth to God. That's a pretty big picture. It's an awesome picture. This is why the New Testament doesn't speak simply of the gospel. It speaks of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom. Of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom, we're told, is in our midst, in the person of Christ the King, who has a a rule, a regency, 
a realm. He is the Son of God, the Lord Messiah, the office bearer, and yet he's also the Son of Man, the second King Adam. Invading history to recall us in the Gospel to our true task of turning creation into the culture or kingdom of God. That is to say, the Gospel is about making us as we were called to be in the beginning. Men and women of God. About the liturgy of service in the world to the glory of God. And I think when we begin, even in the smallest degree, to grasp this, it would totally transform the way we think about the church, the way we think about vocations, the way we think about every aspect of our lives. And to quote uh, Klaus Skilder again, he says, in this administration of his own office and in the formation of those who are anointed together with him, that's Christians, there comes about nothing less than a divine action an action proceeding from the Father, Son, and the Spirit to conquer the world for God by the Christ of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This conquest is a reconquest. The property is, as far back as has been destined from eternity, brought back to and restored in its proper, proper relation to the owner. Christ connects the beginnings of the world with the end. So what is the scope of the gospel? Well, we see in this marvelous biblical perspective the exhilarating scope and power of this good news in historical time. The frustration and futility of time to which sin subjects us is being transformed into fruitfulness by Christ's work. And this vision, you see, moves us beyond, well beyond, our personal preoccupations with ourselves or our inward motions or just our own sins and our own progress only and directs us toward our calling to serve the King. The Gospel knows nothing of escape from the world. Our time in it is short enough Don't worry, you'll be gone soon enough. Our purpose is to serve God in it in the few years that we have. A service as priests for its renewal. The gospel is therefore not simply that we are saved from our sins, though it is that, but that we are delivered into the kingdom of righteousness to now serve God's purpose of righteousness and dominion as his image and office bearers in Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel sweeps up into its great symphony every movement of your life, of your work, your family, your vocation, all of our callings, everything that has been dominated by sin is now being transformed by the gospel. And this gives the gospel a limitless application. To quote uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin again, which I think he's helpful here, he says, Since God's work in Jesus Christ on the cross is designed to redeem everything presently under the domain of sin, and since this includes creation, creation should be redeemed. 
This means that all elements of culture, which is man's creative interaction with creation, including money and food and technology and education and the arts and politics, presently burdened under the weight of sin, are designed to be redeemed. Salvation isn't liberation from creation, it's liberation from sin. The gospel is calculated to redeem not just individuals, but all human life and culture and creation. The good news is that God in Jesus Christ has dealt and is dealing decisively with the problem of sin and gradually reinstalling His righteousness in the earth. The gospel is that everything wrong in this world, God is setting right, end quote. The scope of gospel life and witness then, this proclamation of salvation, infuses the gospel with something cosmic in scope, meaning and significance. It challenges, you see, this compartmentalized, personalist, truncated, reductionist, escapist gospel that's so deeply affected the modern church and gets us more concerned with the color of the wallpaper in the ladies' bathroom than in the kingdom of God. We have seen then that the key to grasping this reality is plotting the path from Eden to Christ, from the first to the second Adam. Christ's work was prefigured in Adam, and yet... Adam's created sonship reflects the the greater sonship of Christ, who is eternally the Son. And yet Adam was co-ruler, made in the image of God the Son, who is ruler from all eternity. So you have, in one sense, Adam is a reflection, he's the image bearer of the Son, and then the Son is is the antitype of historical Adam. Adam is a type of Christ because he points to the one who is the perfect dominion man. We have an interesting fascination today, don't we, with superheroes. It's a superhero culture. The movies, superheroes. We want dominion man, superman, batman, whoever it is these days. Well, Jesus Christ, in his life, what did he do? He, he turned water to wine. He calmed the storm. He walked on the water. He exercised total dominion, perfect dominion over the creation. That's why we read Psalm 8, which is paralleled in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 8. We're reminded there of this calling of man that is perfectly fulfilled in the work of Christ, made a little less than God crowned with glory and honor, given rule over all the works of God's hands. A a text fulfilled perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, and He is restoring us as being conformed to His image to that very purpose. He recommissions us. And because of our sins, yes, we forfeited relationship with God and with it our purpose of bringing creation into submission to its sovereign Lord. But that all changes with Jesus. As John Barber has noted, and I'm coming to an end now, listen closely in these last few moments. John Barber has noted, he says, by living the perfect life and also by demonstrating absolute mastery over nature through miracles, Christ 
the cultural man fulfills God's dominion mandate flawlessly. His accomplishment is made practical for us when by faith we place our trust on Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It is then that the vertical and horizontal connotations of our rebellion against a holy God are set right. In Christ, man is restored in rich fellowship with God and is also returned and also is returned to his co-dominion over the earth. Now, it's possible that in this theological review that I've given you of the gospel from Eden, you might be thinking that there is perhaps a triumphalistic overstatement in setting out the meaning and scope of such a total victory over sin and its corruption and our restoration to that ancient calling. Come on, Joe, isn't salvation really just about being rescued from this evil world and going to be with Jesus? Well, to address that question as we close, we have to note not just the beginning of this great gospel story in Eden, not just the earliest movement of the symphony of grace, but also the concluding crescendo in the glorification of Christ. As we have seen, Christ is Alpha and Omega. Yes, he's there at the beginning. From him, through him, to him are all things, but he's also there at the end. Christ entered history 2,000 years ago. Yes, he lived, he died, he raised, but he ascended to heaven. So what can we say about the current status of the second Adam and its implications for the future for the gospel? Well, important as the doctrine of the ascension of Christ is, an equally important truth is often overlooked, that of his session. The session of Jesus Christ is the reality of the perpetual presence of Jesus' human nature in the majesty and glory of heaven at the right hand of God the Father. That today, the man, Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of God. That is to say, his physical body, the physical body of Jesus, is locally present in heaven, and that's why he sends the Holy Spirit into the world in his stead. He said to his disciples, don't hang on to me. It's better that I go. Because if I don't go, the Comforter won't be sent to you. When he comes, he will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit isn't locally limited. This truth links, you see, Jesus' resurrection physically, his physical ascension in the Gospels, and the second coming of Christ Jesus for judgment because they're all part of the total exaltation of Jesus Christ in complete victory. Paul writes, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25. By his ascension and session, Christ is now ruling as God's vice regent over the entire universe as he wars to subject everything to himself. That's all part of the gospel. That's his current position. Prior to the incarnation, you see, of the last Adam, because of sin, the sons of Adam, as we've seen, as we noted at the beginning, we experienced loneliness, we experienced dislocation. It's expressed best, isn't it, in that psalm of David, 
Where Christ, who drank down that loneliness and separation, he drank it down to the dregs. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That isn't just the prayer of Christ. That's the prayer of man dislocated from God. Jesus drinks it down to the dregs at the cross in his separation from God. But because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we are restored to a communion with God that is in principle closer than Eden itself. This is because in Jesus Christ, the resurrected resurrected office bearer in heaven, human being, human beings, man sits in session with the triune God. You think about that. Warring against evil and sitting in judgment over it, for all judgment has been committed to the Son. So his ascension and present rule actually in the Bible is presented to us as the first fruits. Jesus' ascension and session is the first fruits of the new humanity, of the new creation presented to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 23. Scripture tells us that we are today seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's a comfortable seat. 1 Corinthians, uh, Ephesians 2, 6. We are seated with Christ in our covenantal union with Him in heavenly places because of the man, Jesus Christ. Because of our union with Him, we participate now in His rule and His victory. It's not fully realized. It's not fully accomplished. But it's happening. It's begun. It's taking place. Christ is ruling and reigning. He has sat down. As such, the session of Christ is the exaltation of all His elect people to their proper calling. The church father Athanasius declared regarding the Pauline expression, highly exalted, He says, the term in question, highly exalted, does not signify that the essence of the word was exalted, for he was ever and is equal to God. But the exaltation is of the manhood. The logos, the word, didn't need exaltation. He ever was God. But the man is exalted. This is Psalm 8 again. Another church father, Chrysostom, said of this same exaltation, listen to these beautiful words. He says, We who appeared unworthy of earth have been led up today into the heavens. We who were not worthy of the preeminence below have ascended to the kingdom above. We have scaled the heavens. We have attained the royal throne. And that nature, that human nature, on whose account the cherubim guarded paradise, today sits above the cherubim. In Jesus Christ. It is by this that we intercede today with God as His priest against all evil, all injustice. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's by this ascension and session of the second Adam that we are assured of total victory. Temporal and spiritual enemies shall be made his footstool. 
By his regal power, Christ is and shall subdue all things for his people, place them under his feet. At the end of history, in the final summing up, the great summation of all things in Christ, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Everything we have brought into subjection, everything will be brought into subjection willingly or unwillingly and turned over to God the Father. So, the gospel really is good news. <laughs> it really is good news. It extends its reach through all human history from the time Adam was created and commissioned in a good creation and the first promise of reconciliation was made right through to the ascension, session and final judgment of Jesus Christ the Lord. That's why I said creation is, uh, redemptive history is a cosmic theater in which all life is played out either moving towards redemption or moving towards final judgment and the good news is that the office bearer the man Jesus Christ is king he's on his throne he's made satisfaction for sin he is ruling and reigning and establishing his kingdom in the earth reconciling all things in heaven and earth to God and for us this means as Dr. Daniel Strange has noted as those united to Christ, we inherit his story of relating to culture. As the recapitulating second Adam, Jesus Christ is the man of culture par excellence, united, anointed by the Spirit, demonstrating his perfect dominion over creation. His death deals with the divine wrath and curse. His resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. Christians are anointed by the Holy Spirit and in their adoption as sons are restored to take, to take up the cultural mandate originally given to Adam. Our good works that cover every aspect of our individual, social and political lives whilst never redeeming are part of the redemptive kingdom. As done in Christ and by the Spirit, they are God's way of extending the kingdom in the present as faithfully present ambassadors of Christ, we actively proclaim his lordship, taking every thought captive for him in anticipatory foretaste of the final consummation. That's the gospel. And since this mandate to have dominion and subdue all things existed prior to sin, this command existed prior to sin, for us to avoid it or reject that mandate of cultural labor in service of the Great Commission is sinful. It's to be on strike against the gospel and against the king. Since Christ is the very embodiment of all treasures of wisdom and knowledge and all that is necessary for kingdom culture, to deny that we have a task in the earth to apply his salvation, victory and lordship, life and truth to all aspects of life is actually to renounce Christ. And his office. Christ is the king of the whole earth. And you and I are his ambassadors. Because this gospel is true, our calling is liturgy as his royal priesthood. To finally lay at God's feet all the fruits of our labors at the end. The development of all our powers in faithful adoration. As our humble part in Christ's reconciliation recovery and restoration of all things to God in that great final summation, you will play a part 
And in that moment of unspeakable joy when we place all at his feet, having been faithful with the talents entrusted to us, we shall fully understand with Job that our Redeemer lives as in our flesh we see God. The curse is ended and we shall reign with him forever. As one poet has stated it, the new Eden comes and all else passes. The hills grown old with time shall see their youth again. The, cones, the cold stone walls of Jericho around the heart of ancient man shall fall before the trumpets blow as victors seize the land. The time that comes beats with the loudest drums. Creation has but one conclusion. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.